Welcome to our continuing 2019 educational webinar series. I am Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Warren Cook, co-founder of Symbian's HR with us today. Warren provides strategic oversight for service delivery, business operations, and technical guidance on consulting engagements. He is a human resources subject matter expert with over 24 years of experience as a strategic human resources business partner, project manager, and people leader across private and public sectors organizations. Warren is responsible for strategic planning of all client consulting engagements from initial needs assessment and compliance review through delivery of customized strategic solutions that meet the client's business goals. He has a proven track record of providing executive coaching and guidance to business leaders and human resource professionals at all levels, including the C-suite of Fortune 100 companies. Warren holds a BS in Human Resource Management and an MBA in Project Management and an MS in Industrial and Organizational Psychology. Warren is the author of Applicant Interview Preparation, Practical Coaching for Today. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following, following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. A download of the handout is available with a button on the bottom right-hand side of your screen or on the side panel. So Warren, a warm welcome. Thank you, Catherine. Happy to be here today. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to talk today about diversity and inclusion and a variety of the changes that are coming uh, for the Department of Labor's FLSA. And I'm excited to be here and share all this information with you today. Uh, we'll go through this uh, as comprehensively as possible as time permits. Uh, but I'm excited to say that, you know, if you do have questions, we'll gather those questions and uh, take some time to answer those uh, as we get to the end of the, uh, the webinar session. So who are we? Who are we that are joining and, and listening in to this webinar today? And generally, it's professionals with a diverse backgrounds, uh, different subject matter expertise, all working together and working diligently to make sure that we can come together in our communities to influence change and, and uh, change activities and behaviors in our workplaces. And so that's who we all are on this call today, you know, a group of individuals with different backgrounds trying to implement or be champions of change. And, you know, specifically think about and reflect on why you're attending this webinar today. And I'm hoping it's to enhance your competence, your knowledge and your capabilities around that ability to influence change, uh, specifically in the workplace 
through a variety of either strategies, techniques, uh, understandings, information that will ultimately enrich the culture, the engagement, and the competitive advantage of the organizations that we're all part of. And this is really a goal that is in our minds around diversity and inclusion. Although it's very critical today that we, we separate diversity and inclusion in our minds as far as defining those terms and understanding how they really do impact the workplace and how to use these items and, and, and constructs uh, effectively and strategically. And so my goal today is to make sure that I share with you my knowledge and experience, some, some case studies and some other uh, techniques and strategies to focus your ability to influence change far beyond the boardroom. And when we say boardroom, it's whoever your leadership team is, your management team, uh, maybe your peers, uh, maybe it's organizations or associations you're working with, but I wanna help you uh, get the, the content expertise and the knowledge you need so that you can influence change effectively. And then that impact is gonna be critical to the continued business growth and success of the organizations you work with, work for, or lead. Uh, the reason we want to focus it on, on empowering you to have this change is because you can't simply just implement policies and practices uh, and it works. It's really about culture changes and influence and how you communicate and how you articulate. And so today we really want to spend time giving you those tools in your toolbox to be effective in empowering you to, to lead and drive that change. So my goal today is really to share my knowledge and insight, empower and motivate you. So it's not just giving you those tools, but motivate you with the confidence that these changes are possible, that it takes time, but with persistence and due diligence, you can really uh, influence others to learn and understand uh, these concepts. And then recognize that you do have the ability to change uh, what you want. I want you to be able to be that change champion. And the theme throughout this webinar is really to hope uh, is to motivate you uh, to do that effectively to achieve your goals, both professionally and, and, and personally. And so what we're gonna cover first is there's a lot of myths and misunderstandings around the topics of diversity, affirmative action and inclusion. And in the years that I've been uh, coaching and developing leaders and working with uh, individuals that are going through transition from one organization to another, it becomes uh, painfully obvious that um, the way we've been trained, the way we've been taught to think about these topics uh, permeates with us, even if the fundamental um, reasoning or the fundamental uh, definitions, uh, programs are not uh, consistent from one organization to another. And so we're gonna talk about these topics a little bit and make sure that we just widen our understanding, uh, open our lens a little bit and take in a variety of information. So if we just defined diversity, you know, we've got Merriam-Webster and we've got dictionary.com. Here's two sources that simply define diversity as a condition of having or being different elements or the state of being diverse, being different, uh, unlikeness. And so this is just the pure definition of diversity. And if you think about all the diversity initiatives and all the diversity programs out there and the thousands of people in the last decade that have been hired to run diversity programs, um, it, it's really odd that that's the approach since diversity is just the stat, state of being different uh, and not having uh, the same likeness. And so that, that those things may already exist there. And when we don't understand the true meaning of diversity, here are some things that I've been asked over my career uh, in a, a, approaches to solve diversity as if diversity is the problem. And 
one organization came to me and said, we need you to bring us diversity because we're all Caucasian. Uh, and, you know, I laughed for a little bit and, and, and then addressed that. And we're going to talk about later how I address that. Um, I've had organizations talk about we're all men here. We need women to be diverse. We need more color in the leadership team. Or sometimes they say we need people from other backgrounds. Or more recently, a lot of people simply say we need younger employees because our workforce is aging. And these are all critical misunderstandings because that's not what diversity is about. Every one of these statements and each time an organization had potentially a good intent to talk about diversity with me uh, or with their leadership team, every one of these statements is actually discriminatory in its basis. You know, you're singling out a race, you're singling out a gender, you're singling out a color here, and you're singling out age. So we wanna really make sure we're talking about and, and clarifying what these uh, terms of diversity inclusion mean. Affirmative action is another category that really gets blended in depending on where you've worked in your career. So if you've worked at any federal contractor or any company that was a federal contractor, you may have been exposed to affirmative action programs or plans or placement goals or initiatives mostly around recruiting. Affirmative action is really a policy that's designed to favor those who suffer from discrimination especially if it's in relation to employment or education, and then an active effort to improve the employment or education opportunity. So affirmative action in general is a solution to past discriminatory behaviors. And so when these affirmative action laws and regulations uh, came out, when they were promulgated and when they were implemented in organizations through affirmative action plans and programs, they were designed to stop past discriminatory practices, whether intentional or unintentional. And so what was driven into the minds of most people in the workforce in those situations was you have to think about minorities and females, make sure you're hiring minorities and females or veterans or disabled people. So there was a huge mindset there. And ultimately the culture was that there were quotas um, and that you had to do this no matter how qualified or unqualified the applicants or people were. And then there's some people today that still believe because they worked in that environment at one point in their career, that every business has affirmative action programs, and that's simply not the case. If you're not a federal contractor, uh, you probably don't have an affirmative action program because it would be completely voluntary to do it. And then this must add minorities and females at all costs was really ingrained into managers and supervisors over many, many years. And so if you were in an environment that was focused on affirmative action, that got confused with diversity. And then the two blended into your current state thinking around what it means to have diversity or what it means to have a diversity program. And at the end of the day, why we're here talking together is to understand how does diversity even become a competitive advantage or how does diversity become important uh, to us and to what we're doing? And so inclusion takes us in a different path. Inclusion takes us down another avenue. And the definition from both websites, Murray and Webster and dictionary.com say the act of including and the state of being included. Pretty simplistic. Um, it's almost common sense, you would think. Uh, however, this is an area that is uh, really missing in the whole concept and picture of diversity and inclusion. And the reason why I named this webinar and this presentation that I've delivered uh, at, at state conferences and chair meetings and, and uh, other events, both uh, in, uh, in association conferences as well as just private organizations, is to help people understand those differences between diversity and inclusion to help the business. And so 
inclusion is often misunderstood and misapplied as well to achieve inclusion. Some organizations have gone as far as saying that we have a women's leadership team or a, a, a less than 40 group or 40 and under. And they put all these groups together that actually are segregating the workforce based on some characteristic or some common characteristic, which is the exact opposite of what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to include everybody in business activities. We're trying to include everybody across the, the organization to develop a culture of information sharing and um, sharing perspectives and ideas and, and uh, opening lenses so that people can be more exposed to diversity of thought. And so inviting younger team members to management team meetings is another way people have said, well, that'll solve our problem. Let's just bring in the young people. Well, again, you're targeting them not because of what their diversity is. You're targeting them based on some characteristic that may or may not be protected, but it's a characteristic that you shouldn't be isolating them for. And then this last bullet talks about having programs specifically for that characteristic. So, you know, it's a, a young professional team, a minority mentoring program. You know, if you really step back and look at these programs and practices, they are intentionally discriminating against anybody who doesn't fit that characteristic. So it, it's contrary to the initial goal or the initiative of having an inclusive environment. And again, our goal is really to focus on building and developing an inclusive culture, not an exclusive culture. And so let's change gears a little bit now that we have some fundamental understanding or maybe a difference in our understanding of diversity and inclusion and talk about, you know, practical ways that you can create strategic advantage through diversity and inclusion models in your workplace. So the current model, the way a lot of organizations go about this today from the Fortune 50 companies all the way down to small businesses, is that they spend a lot of money on acquiring or hiring a diversity or diversity inclusion expert, subject matter expert or executive or manager or leader. And then they spend money building a diversity program and uh, designing how they're going to hire and attract talent that are diverse. And then they go and feel that their end goal is to have diversity, that they're going to establish and build diversity in the workplace. And just think about that. So we have, you know, let's say your organization is 100 employees and you hire this uh, diversity leader and you spend a couple hundred thousand dollars on their salary, as well as all the programs they want to implement and materials and communications and time. And then you build this program and then you say, wow, look, we've established a diverse workforce. And what I'll share with you is before you ever hired that person, you already had a diverse workforce. It already existed. It's already there. And so the reality is whether you're a room full of 10 Caucasians or 10 African-Americans or all women or all men or all young or all old, whatever the makeup is of your workforce today, there is diversity in those group of individuals. Now, they may not be diverse as far as an affirmative action program who has goals to make sure that there's right workforce representation for legal purposes and to make sure that the workforce is representative of your of your applicant pool and your demographics and the census in your area. But we're talking about diversity and inclusion as a business tool and as a competitive advantage to be competitive. And so the first thing I recommend doing is making sure you understand that it's already there in your workforce. Every business today has diversity in their workforce. 
No two individuals are exactly alike, have the same background, have the same experience, have the same regional upbringing, education, none of it. And even if they had the same school and the same parents and the same jobs, their life experiences would be different, bringing a different lens to your workforce and organization. And so the model that I recommend is starting with that piece first, leveraging your peers and your management to understand that diversity is already there. The goal really needs to be inclusion, becoming an inclusive culture, being an environment where everybody matters in a way that you can leverage their diverse experiences and their diverse knowledge and the fact that they are diverse. And so you want to implement inclusive strategies. Those inclusive strategies bring these different individuals in your workforce together, not just because of title or roles, but it's because of what they can add value to the workplace, add value to solving problems related to your products or services for your customers. And in that way, you create competitive advantage, you create engagement with the workforce, and that engagement generally leads to greater retention of the talent you spent time and money hiring. And so again, you wanna first recognize that diversity exists, implement inclusive strategies, ways to bring people together, not separate them, not isolate them, not put them in silos, and then leverage that activity in those uh, situations into an overall business competitive advantage, have more engagement and retention. And by the way, when you think about companies that uh, win awards around, you know, best company to work for and, and uh, top 100 companies or top 10 company, whatever it may be, generally they're doing a pretty good job of executing a culture of inclusiveness because people want to work there because they're heard, they're valued. You know, generally when you do employee engagement surveys, the top things that come out are lack of communication, lack of compensation, lack of benefits. There's just common gripes across the industry. But when you start having more inclusive practices and people whose voices are heard and they have a way to demonstrate their skill sets and their competencies to add value to the business and they can feel connected, um, the retention is just goes through the roof and you have much lower turnover and people want to come work for you, which makes your recruiting practices a little easier. So how do you, what's your role in advocating change? You know, you wanna, you wanna make sure you're educating leadership and that you're educating the workforce uh, on these definitions of diversity and inclusion, on what these uh, constructs and what these concepts mean and how you can utilize those to make sure that the organization works better together. You wanna to use the unique competencies that you have to identify and communicate where opportunities exist, right? And so no matter if you're an HR professional, a business leader, a manager, whatever your role, you can still influence change and create an extrinsic um, uh, leadership through your actions uh, that will help the culture shift. Even if you start with just your team and then demonstrate that your team is more effective, more productive, more innovative, more creative, you can start leveraging those leaders, managers, and peers uh, that you work with to start moving towards this change. You wanna design programs that really leverage the existing diversity, create inclusion. You wanna get away from thinking about, well, we have to go get diversity. Now you may want a more diverse representative workforce as far as visually, but again, if you have an all Asian workforce, if you have an entire Latino workforce, if you have an entire male workforce or female, that wouldn't mean you don't have diversity. It simply means that it's not as diverse as some other organizations or the, or the general public. But again, you're, this, this mission here is about leveraging who is in the workforce today 
to make it more inclusive and 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 uh, create that competitive advantage. So I encourage you to really become that champion of change, become that champion of education and moving the needle to better understanding and clarity for everybody. Now, when we think about how we go about identifying the opportunities for inclusion, these are some of the life cycle of an employee that you should think about that you can implement or create opportunities uh, to leverage inclusion. And that could be in your strategic planning of resources, allocation of resources, projects, um, initiatives. You know, who are you including in those projects? Are you including people simply based on their title? Are you including them based on their functional expertise? Or are you really considering every aspect of the workforce and all the diversity they bring to maximize the potential and capabilities of the business? When you're recruiting and you're doing onboarding, how are you able to demonstrate an inclusive culture? How can you demonstrate uh, engaging activities to make sure that you're hiring the right individuals, that you're bringing the right talent to the table? And then when you're deploying and training your workforce, you know, are you thinking about how, what's the best way to train the workforce? What's the best way to bring people together and share those expertise uh, and leverage what they know so that those diverse thoughts and, and um, uh, perspectives help onboard, help develop, help train, help pass knowledge, help transfer intellectual knowledge about your business and practices. When you're motivating and engaging employees, these inclusive activities address that and touch on that but there's ways to, to motivate people based on the fact that you're trying to be an inclusive organization. And then again, when you're developing and training the employees further through the organization, through your performance reviews or performance management, are you doing the things to build trust in that engagement throughout the process? And then ultimately, you know, you're measuring performance and you're managing that and you go back into the planning stage. So there's lots of opportunities uh, throughout an employee life cycle. And this is just a very minimal view of the employee life cycle. It's not to minimize the, the reality of it, but um, this is just a very high level overview of how you could start thinking about things differently. So let's look at a few real examples of creating an inclusive strategy, and it might help, uh, help you think about this whole scenario differently, and it might give you some ideas of how you can come up with creative solutions to leverage uh, inclusion in your workplace. So one organization I was with uh, was about to be audited. This was a pharmaceutical manufacturing company of APIs. It was uh, controlled substances. And we were uh, notified that the Chinese FDA was going to audit our organization. And so I was sitting in a meeting with the leadership team. And the end result of an hour and a half meeting or so was that they were just going to go hire an interpreter. And I'm sitting there with my HR and business background. I'm thinking about inclusion. I'm thinking about the workforce. And I was just shocked that they just wanted to go out and hire an interpreter so that they can bring a person in and work with the Chinese FDA through this process. And, um, you know, I wanted to really leverage something differently. And so I went and said, you know what, we have two PhD chemists on staff. They were part of our R&D team. They were process chemists and they both spoke Chinese. One actually spoke Mandarin and Cantonese. And so I recommended that why don't we approach this employee who knows our processes, knows our systems, uh, speaks the language and understands the culture. Why don't we ask that person to host and facilitate the audit? And so we did. And we had an internal staff member host the audit. They were able to interpret the information without having any kind of gaps in the technical or science uh, that was going on between the auditors uh, and our, our team. 
And then they were able to actually give us insight and information as to what the concerns were from the auditors versus just trying to interpret the language alone without the context of this of the subject matter. And so we had an amazing audit. There were no findings from the audit. And the auditors actually were shocked and surprised that we did this and gave us tremendous positive feedback, which reinforced the fact that us including this employee in the process who otherwise would have never been part of the process just really impressed them. Uh, and it showed them that we were trying to be respectful of their language, their culture, and what they were trying to do to make it easy for both of us. And so it became a very engaging event for the employee. Uh, it became a more successful audit process. Um, we were able to create and solve a business problem of the Chinese FDA coming to audit us. And it really started demonstrating to the workforce that management was willing to include employees, not just because of their technical skill set, but because of their diversity that they bring to our organization. And we leveraged that competitively. So we saved money on the auditor, but we gained so much more by having this employee part of the audit. We gained so much more by creating an inclusive environment uh, and communicating that. Uh, and it started to impact our culture. So one example of just leveraging uh, the diversity that already existed in the workplace and then move forward into leveraging another way. And in fact, this organization did a great job. They were going to go to Turkey uh, to explore some uh, uh, source uh, for the resources of uh, the chemicals. And um, they came up on their own without even having to ask me to take one of their uh, folks who were originally from Turkey. What was amazing is this person was an engineer and had nothing to do with the buyer or the selection of these uh, DEA materials. And yet they recognized that just taking the individual with would enhance their ability to blend into the culture, to understand the language and to make it a more effective uh, uh, and successful business trip. So this is one example of taking an existing resource within your diverse workplace and leveraging them to make it much more uh, effective. A second uh, example that I want to share with you is uh, an organization that I was brought into and they simply said, we're building a diversity council and we're building it from our leadership team. And we're concerned because we need you to bring us diversity because all of us are white males. And this one gave me a huge chuckle um, because uh, again, if, you, if you're hearing me throughout this webinar so far, Every group I look at, every individual I look at is diverse and different and brings a different set of life experiences to the table, which means everybody has tremendous value if you harness it. And so um, when I think about you know, what my solution here was, I had a focus on what we talked about earlier, helping them recognize that diversity of thought across the workforce is critical and that diversity already exists. And so to limit a diversity council only to the leadership team wasn't going to achieve their goal. There's there's no benefit of just saying everybody that's in the in the executive tower is now the executive tower council and leadership team uh, for diversity. And so they were able to step back and recognize that if they brought people together from all different levels in the organization, as well as all different functional areas or departments, they'd end up with this cross-functional diversity council. And a cross-functional diversity council simply immediately creates the dynamics in achieving their goals. So we had um, entry-level employees or line staff, so, so to speak. Um, we had managers and supervisors. So we had in a room uh, uh, people who never worked together. Maybe they worked for the other person, but they never worked together. And so it really disrupted the leadership team's thinking 
and created a great opportunity for people to take off their title hat and just look at people for what they are and what they bring to the table and remember that they all have these diverse backgrounds and capabilities. And so we had a tremendous improvement in the stakeholder value of support for the council, of feeling engaged, and we were able to link operational projects and strategies together because we were sharing with a, a diverse group, right, uh, of different uh, cross-functional people, what they intended to accomplish for the business. And so rather than this being a, a gathering of people to talk about diversity, it was just a gathering of people to talk about where the business was going, where the business was heading, what the business goals and strategies were, and bringing everybody together to give their opinions and thoughts from their unique backgrounds. And it ended up tremendously improving our quality. It tremendously improved the path we were taking, the service models we were using, because we really were listening to everybody. And it just became an opportunity where each time we rotated, every six months when we rotated diversity team members, people were begging to be part of this team, to be part of this diversity council, uh, to enhance the overall competitiveness of the business, uh, and to just be part of something that was really leading uh, our organization to be competitive. So think about what you might need to do in your workplace to first initially disrupt and change the thinking around diversity inclusion and how you can be more inclusive. Let's take a few minutes and talk about millennials in the workplace and the impact uh, that they have had um, because of the, the, the diversity uh, that they bring in the organization as far as their thoughts and their lenses. So again, you already have diversity in your workplace, but as an entire generation moves into the workplace, they are bringing with them a different lens. And we wanna make sure that we can engage and, and leverage these assets because a lot of organizations I go into, one of the fears that management might share with me is, oh my God, all these young people are coming in telling us what to do. And it's really a, a negative approach versus forgetting that they're a different generation for a moment and just thinking about, these are our future buyers, these are our consumers, these are our customers, there's an entire generation that's thinking differently, that's growing up with technologies and tools that we never would have imagined only 10, 15 years ago, and they don't have any clue as to what some of us have gone through to get where our business is today because of their exposure. And so we really wanna leverage everyone in the workforce, but to do that, we have to recognize how we view things. So older generations, as this slide may bring out for you, they see the world differently. They think about the right thing to do, they think about compliance, and they think about equality. <clears throat> and they base that on characteristics that they almost visually see, which are unfortunately those protected characteristics. They see the gender, they see the race, uh, they may be exposed to religion or ethnicity, uh, they may be exposed to sexual orientation and so on. But these generations, uh, other than the millennials, we're trained for years, if you think about earlier in this presentation, when we talked about affirmative action and organizations that were trying to repair past discriminatory practices, all they know is that first bullet of doing the right thing, compliance, compliance, you have to hire this, you have to do this, this is what diversity means, which was all you know misnomers and myths and, and misunderstandings. And so this mentality and this lens that the other generations have creates a tremendous disconnect uh, between one generation and the other, and specifically with the millennials. But millennials look at the world extremely differently than those other generations, just because of, of who they are and what's going on in our world today and society. You know, it's a melting pot, and millennials do not view other individuals with implicit biases and stereotypes that older generations have. 
Millennials rarely speak in terms of color, gender, age. They don't. Uh, they think about knowledge and value and experience and insights and and how can we help and what can we do together and how can we save the world, right? Um, so you want to recognize that and understand that right off the bat, they have a different lens and that creates a critical disconnect between that generation and the rest. And so if you want to create an inclusive culture around this and you want to focus on how to make sure that you're bringing these individuals together, leadership first has to demonstrate that they value uh, diversity of thought from all generations, that they truly do understand um, how to bring people together and that they have a goal to do so. And so, you know, educate the workforce, help them understand that there are different views and that we're looking at things through a different lens. And once you recognize that everybody has this different lens and there's almost zero willful intent to make problems in the workplace or cause issues and, and disconnects, then we can value that knowledge transfer that has to happen. And then we can infuse people together from different generations to make an inclusive relationship and then share ideas, share innovation in both directions. So sometimes the mistake is that we try to teach our current workforce that they need to accept millennials and they need to work with them. But we're failing to help millennials recognize and understand the workforce that already exists in our businesses and our, our organizations. So it can't be one sided. You have to be bringing both uh, generations together. And one, one great way to do this is right off the bat, when you go through your hiring practices and you go through orientation and onboarding, it may be very good to create either a mentoring program or a knowledge transfer onboarding program, almost like um, a buddy system where you're assigning people from different functional areas who have been with the organization, not based on age, just based on what they've done with the organization and their intellectual knowledge to work with that new hire and help them understand the culture and the business itself, not necessarily just how to do their job functionally. So separate function from intellectual knowledge of the business and knowledge transfer and culture to that new hire. And that new hire doesn't have to be a millennial. It can be anybody. But just think about the advantages of having a program in place that regardless of age or generation, so to speak, you are including everybody that comes on board with those that already exist, and you just reinforce the culture that you're dr driving to make sure that you continue to have that competitive advantage. I find it very interesting at times when uh, organizations talk about uh, millennials and uh, how to include this, but you know, sometimes I ask them, you know, they see somebody with tattoos or piercings or dressed a little differently, whatever it may be, and they say, oh, look at these millennials. But they also fail to recognize that those same millennials are your customers or your future customers, or they're going to influence and, and inform your customers. So really think about how you look at the workforce, how you look at the workforce as they represent your potential customers and clients. And try to make sure that you recognize that if you're more inclusive, there's more ideas and information you'll get to better serve those that you're providing products and services to. So here's five strategic benefits to uh, an inclusive program and, and, and embedding inclusion in your workforce, not just diversity, but inclusion. It helps retention. It'll improve employee engagement and satisfaction that is really tied to productivity. Uh, happy employees, engaged employees are much more productive much more uh, collaborative uh, and communicate at a higher level. And on top of that, it creates more trust between the workforce and management. 
Social responsibility and public relations goes through the roof because more and more people learn about how inclusive you are and how you're leveraging uh, the diversity of your workforce to be engaging. Uh, it just demonstrates more social responsibility and it's a great tool for social and public relations, especially community uh, relations and community outreach when you're doing talent acquisition, hiring, or just trying to share information through your social media uh, outlets. Market share, you know, if you leverage an inclusive lens and you're thinking about your customers differently, you may be able to gain more market share. You may be able to enter new markets that your competition isn't simply because you're willing to listen to the views and perspectives of other people. And then finally, just from a compliance or protecting a risk management perspective to protect your business, you know, you can mitigate discrimination and harassment claims much more effectively when you've got an inclusive environment that everybody feels engaged, involved, and, and collaborative. If people are feeling that way, it's very unlikely that they're going to feel that you're discriminating against them based on a protected characteristic. If you're willing to engage them, talk to them, work with them, collaborate with them across lines of functions, across uh, hierarchy, um, the fact that, that you're doing that often mitigates any potential for someone to say, well, you know what, you're discriminating against me because of my color or my age or my race or whatever, because you're already demonstrating a culture and behaviors that include everybody all the time. So it's really helpful to think about this risk management as well as a strategic advantage. But overall, I think gaining more market share and retaining employees is critical, but all five of these items are really beneficial to your organization. So I hope you enjoyed the, the topic of diversity and inclusion. Again, I really emphasize that you've already got diversity. Go out there and figure out ways to be a champion of change, leverage that change, uh, and get that inclusion going. So we're going to change gears here and talk about proposed rule changes uh, that are out now from the Department of Labor under the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is often referenced as just the FLSA. Uh, and we want to make sure that there's an understanding uh, in the audience of what this program is, what's happening. Um, it was jump-started several years ago uh, and then paused uh, in the Obama administration. And then when the Trump administration took over, um, they tried to jump-start it again, and they did. Uh, and now we've landed at some new uh, changes that will uh, impact your business. And so we're going to go through this and try to give you just a high level overview. Uh, this is all for awareness. This rule change has not yet become effective. Uh, some of the mistakes people made um, back in 2016 uh, was as soon as these proposed rules were coming through the process in the government, they made changes to their workforce. They made changes to the organizations that I'm quite sure they regret today uh, because it would have impacted their cash flow and impacted uh, the cost of doing business. But right now, the proposed rule is open for public comment until uh, May of this year. Uh, they'll collect all their comments. And in the first round uh, a few years ago, they had over 250,000 comments. So there's a lot for them to go through. Uh, and if it is uh, once the comment period closes, uh, if, if they decide that they're going to move forward, uh, there's an anticipation that the rule would be effective and the changes would be effective January 1st of 2020. I will share though that because this has been in the public eye and public space for so many years now, four or five years now, that this has been a topic that's just been out there and people are pre preparing and, and uh, exploring uh, what might happen, they may release the rule and make it effective much sooner than January. Uh, so we have to be on guard and prepared to think about how that might happen or what might happen in that situation. So FLSA exemption criteria, just as a very high level, when you're in a, an organization that has employees, you have to de determine whether or not you're going to exempt some of the positions 
to be exempt from the FLSA rules, which means that you're going to say that they're not eligible for minimum wage and they're not eligible for overtime, anybody in that position. And so there's three things that have to be satisfied. It's a three-pronged test uh, to do this. And there's a lot of myths and, and um, uh, misnomers out there about how this works. But payment has to be on a salary basis. Payment has to be a minimum salary. And then there's a duties test. What's interesting here is the proposed rule is going to change from uh, the former $455 uh, a week to $679 a week. And you still have to satisfy this duties test. So we've got salary basis, minimum salary, and a duties test, which is where most people fail to take appropriate action. But um, this is how you go about evaluating, doing a job analysis, and determining whether or not you're going to exempt the position. The proposed rule changes are changing that threshold from $23,660 a year to $35,308 a year. So that's a 50% increase uh, over what it was. And what that means is that anybody who is not making at least $35,308 once this rule were to go in effect, no matter what the other criteria is, they're not exempt, which means they're eligible for minimum wage and overtime. So we're talking about a, a, a segment of your workforce or organization between $23,000 and $35,000 that if they are not making that $35,000, you no longer will be able to leave them in an exempt position, even if they previously qualified uh, as exempt under the duties test and the salary basis rule. So that's significant to workplace. Highly compensated employee threshold has increased. It's gone up $47,000. So in order to qualify for exemption under the HC, the highly compensated employee exemption, now you have to be making $47,000 more than you had in the past in order to qualify for that exemption. And then another change that they had recommended years ago that, that uh, they backed off of was an automatic increase. Instead of an automatic increase, these new proposed rules are, are suggesting that there would be a periodic review. And that's still left for, open for interpretation. And they're trying to leverage the comments uh, that they received to define what periodic review might mean. But they are going to implement something that says, let's not wait 20, 30 years to change what this salary level is up here. Let's look at it much more frequently. And even if they look at it more frequently, it would still require a proposed rule change, a comment period, and then a, a, a delay for implementation. But the fact that they're going to do this more frequently means you need to be really thoughtful about how you're classifying your employees as exempt or not exempt. <clears throat> Excuse me. The non-discretionary compensation may be counted towards salary threshold. So historically, this was not allowed. And once this goes into place, there will be non-discretionary compensation, which means set set plans that if they do X, Y, and Z, they get X amount. Uh, and it's not just up to management to pick, oh, do we give them a holiday bonus or not? There's a plan and a program of what the compensation uh, targets are and how they earn that. And that uh, up to 10% of their income to qualify for either highly compensated or this 679 a week uh, can be based on that type of income. And then there's no change at all to the duties test. And so um, uh, while there's been a lot of ask by the business community of defining uh, exempt status uh, more effectively so that the testing can be done easily, um, they felt, the government feels that by changing the salary threshold, it's gonna eliminate a lot of the work and having to do duty tests for positions that are less than $35,000. If they're not making that 35,308, then you don't even have to worry about the duties test. Business impact. So we really want to know what it means for you, right? What does this mean to you? Well, it's going to impact your budget because if you have to pay somebody more um, because of their exemption status, then it's going to impact your finances. 
Um, but I strongly urge that you don't just immediately change people's salary, that you have to evaluate what that cost and, and uh, overtime versus salary is going to mean for you in the long run over time. And you should evaluate that with your financial team, your HR team, and, and really plan it out. Uh, product and service delivery may change because if you no longer have people who are able to work 45, 55 hours a week without compensation, uh, you may have to change your, your, your model there. Your customer service hours or your customer service delivery may change. Your actual operating hours may shift or change, or you may have to implement a shift. Uh, you might have to schedule your work a little differently. You may have to think about who does the work. You may look at your job descriptions and start shifting duties and tasks around uh, so that the right person is doing the right work at the right level of compensation. And certainly how you recruit, how you retain employees, the benefits programs you develop all may be impacted uh, by this change. And then your culture may change. A lot of organizations I talk to and work with uh, believe that, you know, in order to be a professional, you have to be exempt. And when you go back to some people and say, you're no longer going to be exempt, you're going to be non-exempt, and you have to fill out a timesheet or, or track your hours, uh, it comes across as an insult. So um, you really have to be prepared for those changes and shifts and how to handle them. And then your sustainability, you know, may depend on being compliant. If you're not compliant and one of your employees sue you or you get sued, uh, it could be really critical to your business. So paying a person a salary doesn't automatically make them exempt. These are some things that are, are risks out there. If you, you know, titles don't matter. It's actually the job analysis. Uh, you know, the government looks at whether you suffer or permit people to work. This is really important for everybody on this webinar to understand that with more and more telecommuting, more remote workers, more mobile devices going on, you know, people have access to work. Uh, and that's going to count towards uh, compensatory time uh, for a non-exempt employee, especially a newly non-exempt employee during these changes that may happen. You've got to be careful about people working through lunch when they're non-exempt or off-site meetings and events. And then there's employees who are truly dedicated and willing to work and go the extra mile. But if they're coming in early and staying late, it's a compliance risk for you if you're not tracking those hours and paying them. You're less likely to be audited by the Department of Labor uh, than you are to have an employee get pissed off or learn about these rules and challenge your organization. Uh, so that's where most of your claims will come from, your workforce. And so it's really important that, you know, they can claim overtime because of their hours that they're tracking themselves. You're not paying them the time and a half. Um, you might not have, have hit minimum wage. There's a lot of risks in this transition. And so when someone historically wasn't tracking time, it becomes a record keeping violation. When someone wasn't paying the time and a half, it becomes an overtime violation. If these are lower waged employees and when they do the math, it, you may have violated federal or state minimum wage. So all these things can be very critical to your business and you can end up with a loss in court that could be back wages, equal damages, penalties. But worst case scenario in all of this is pub uh, publicity that you could be found and publicized as having uh, non-compliant practices with your workforce. So just real quick strategies, make sure you're achieving compliance throughout the workforce and then you've got a transparent process in place. Make sure that if you are impacted by the regulatory changes because you may not have anybody in your workforce impacted and therefore you can just need to be aware of the laws and regulations going forward, but you might not need to make any changes. We recommend for every position in your organization, you designate as exempt that you have conducted a thorough job analysis, appropriate three-pronged testing of the FLSA statute uh, to ensure you classify your employees properly. And once they're impacted, make sure you look at the projected costs because you may not want to exempt that person, even if you're able to, simply to make sure that there's a good work cash flow, that it meets financial projections, 
and that you don't overextend your finances simply to just change their classification. And so really, you know, final thoughts here on the strategies, you know, don't chase the salary threshold. Make sure you understand the cost ahead of time. Examine whether or not you use non-discretionary compensation and what that would mean to make up those salary expectations and requirements. And the law is designed, all of these changes are designed to make sure that there's fair pay in the workplace, that people that deserve to get paid overtime are, instead of over time, salaries have increased it, they've made them exempt, but yet they really are performing tasks and duties that wouldn't qualify as an exemption. While you go through this process, make sure your record keeping is good and your tracking is good. Hold your employees accountable for unauthorized overtime. You may have to pay them, but still hold them accountable through your corrective action practices. And then start the strategy and planning now for when this rule and law uh, comes through. So I'd like to thank you for your time today. And uh, I'm gonna ask Catherine if there were any questions that came through so that we can uh, answer them uh, and um, get through as many questions as we can in our time. Thank you so much, Warren. That was a wonderful presentation on those topics. So uh, we have had a few questions come in. So um, I'm going to uh, bring those up. So um, the first one was diversity and inclusion appears to be a very relevant topic in recent years. And why is that? Great question. Thank you. So um, Part of it has to be with the, an increased volume and an increased awareness through social media of discrimination claims of organizations such uh, uh, facing all kinds of litigation, um, activities that um, are meeting the uh, media front, such as the Me Too movement. All these things start to talk about differences in the workplace based on certain protected characteristics or lawsuits. And that's driven organizations who are paying attention to think more strategically about how to leverage uh, the diversity inclusion programs in the organization to one stop uh, the negativity that might be coming their way, but also to just become competitive uh, and to be recognized as a leader or a thought leader in the industry. Hey, great. Um, Warren, actually, do you have a uh, a contact screen by any chance there? I did not. Oh, okay. All right, great. Um, well, we'll uh, make sure that we have that for our um, our attendees, um, we send it, we always send out attendees a, uh, a a letter afterwards. So we'll make sure that you have uh, Warren's um, Warren's email to be able to contact him directly. Also, so that's fine. Um, okay, we've had some more questions as well. Um, let's see, how do you convince the leadership of the company to become inclusive? Great question. It's one of the most challenging aspects of this whole process and. Um, while I might have made it sound easy or something simple to do, um, this could take months or years uh, to accomplish uh, in reality. Um, the convincing is really more about influencing uh, and using um, your experiences or your successes. So if you have a small team or a team or whoever you have scope of responsibility over, if you can start leveraging or championing these changes internally, and then demonstrate the ROI from that. Demonstrate that return of your investment of time or resources or efforts. You can start helping management see that if they were to simply do the same thing in a larger scale or larger scope or holistically across the organization, it could be beneficial for the entire business. So it's something very hard to leverage, but because of that past question we just had about it's so relevant and so many people are aware of it, um, it's almost like a buzzword that as soon as you tell leadership, hey, I have some solutions or recommendations or some strategies that we think would be effective. 
uh, to improve our inclusion and become competitive, they're probably more willing to listen today than they were five, 10 years ago. So be persistent, um, but don't just say you have to do this. Um, talk about not that they have to, let's talk about how they can do it, not that they just should. So are you, um, I have a question. So are, are you implying that when we, that that when people hire um, people that they can in, ignore the diversity? So not, not particularly, but you want to think about diversity differently. So organizations often say, you know what, uh, we don't have many uh, women on this team. So, you know, as you're recruiting, just you need to really hire a woman. Um, we want to get away from that thinking because it shouldn't be. Well, first of all, that thinking is discriminatory, even though they think their, their intent is good. Um, we want to get to thinking of as we're interviewing and as we're looking at the talent in front of us, let's look at all the diverse experience they bring to the table and how we'll leverage that to be valuable for the organization. So it's really about looking at the person, not with the lens of a protected class or a color or race or gender, or ethnicity, whatever that may be. We want you to look at that person as look at their diverse experience, look at where they've worked, look at the roles they've done, look at the value they've added and recognize whether or not that person joining your organization can bring similar value to your company. Got it. Got it. Um, okay. So we have another question from the um, attendees. How long does it uh, take to create an inclusive culture? So good question. Um, I, I'd love to say, oh, it's eight months and seven days. Um, some organizations have spent decades working on becoming more inclusive, and these are really the thought leaders of the industry uh, across industries. Um, usually you're going to spend six months to a year uh, building your programs and implementing these programs. The hardest part of this is uh, the sustainability. So you may have a great idea, you roll it out, but then like many other projects in a, in a business organization, it just dies on the vine or you implement it and it stops. So the trick to this is an, an inclusive culture has to be ongoing and pervasive, which means you need to embed it in all the things you do. So leadership needs to start demonstrating it all the way through the organization. So it's not, an, there's no end game because you can continuously leverage your current and future uh, workforce, the people you hire, into making it even more inclusive. So um, it takes a while, but it should be an ongoing initiative. There's no end date for when you are suddenly, now you're inclusive. Okay. All right, here's a good question. Um, regarding the FLSA, why can't we just pay our employees more than the salary threshold and be done with this? Ah, because, great, good, good question. Um, one of the greatest myths out there are that you're exempt just because you're paid a salary. And so if you're an organization or an entity that has uh, classified your employees incorrectly, um, just increasing the salary means you have missed a critical component of how you uh, exempt a position. And a lot of organizations I've dealt with in the last few years who actually made the salary changes back in 2016 um, are misclassified today, not because of the compensation, but because of the duties test. So you want to be very cautious in chasing the money and instead think about how are you classifying your employees and would you pass an audit? Uh, because they don't look at titles, they look at the actual duties performed and then they're going to run through their duties test. So uh, be very cautious of just changing the compensation practices. And by the way, you may end up overpaying employees that, you know, you really shouldn't be doing. Hmm. Okay. Um, here's another question here. Uh, communication seems to be key to avoid lawsuits. So how far back can we be sued? And what do you recommend regarding the communication to the workforce? Uh, good question. Yeah. 
So as I mentioned, you know, the, it's very rare that you're going to go into the office tomorrow and the DOLs will be sitting there waiting to, to, to audit you. Um, you know, they go after the large fish. But employees are usually the trigger for lawsuits. So communication is critical. Um, to the first part of your question about how far back, the, the, the uh, damages or the, the suit can go back two years from the date of the suit. Uh, they can go back three years uh, if they believe that the organization was willful in their conduct. And willful could simply be you ignored or failed to do the proper testing of your positions. Um, but no more than three years. So uh, whatever happened beyond three years from today doesn't matter anymore. It's now two years or three years back from today. Um, but Communication is critical, and what I recommend is that you start communicating immediately to your workforce about what you're going to do in trying to ad adhere to the regulations without implying that you weren't complying in the past. You want to simply say that, listen, the proposed rules are changing. Um, we are going to uh, do an analysis. We're going to do an audit of our current practices, uh, and we're going to look at all of our job descriptions. And so I would review all of your job descriptions, perform that job analysis, involve the workforce, be transparent with the process and the timelines so that, when, that, that you keep all the workforce looking forward of what's to come and you engage them through the process rather than just delivering it to them, telling them that you made changes because of the rules because that will prompt them to start saying, well, was this right or wrong before? So engage the employees, have them looking forward as you're looking forward and do your best to make sure they understand that the changes you're making are for the benefit of the workforce and the employees and the employer all to achieve compliance, but to make sure that they're paid properly. Okay, great, great, yeah. All right, um, do you have any final bits of advice for us or things that you wanna leave us with? Um, so from the diversity and inclusion, it, you know, th those activities only are successful when you sustain them. So if you, you know, bring up the topic, you promote it and then it, it drops off and you don't really commit some resources to it, it's gonna be pretty unsuccessful. Uh, and then you'll look back and think that inclusion doesn't work, but it's really because you have to create an inclusive culture, not just an inclusive project. And for the FLSA changes, really be patient uh, with, with implementing salary changes um, just because the rule is gonna change, but be very pensive and strategic and thoughtful uh, around your approach to fixing whatever might be going on in your workplace. Um, because if you do it haphazardly and you do get audited or employees complain, you want to make sure that you had a very um, uh, logical, very uh, systematic approach of how you made your decision so that it doesn't look like your changes are discriminatory. So uh, that's a thought on inclusion and, and a thought on the FLSA. So I, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to present today. Okay. Well, we really appreciate you being here, Warren. And attendees, um, Please use the uh, contact information that we're going to be sending out to you. Um, you. You will be getting that within two days of the broadcast. Um, usually doesn't take up to two days, but um, please give us um, that much time. Um, you can send us questions and we will forward them on if you think of them uh, later. Um, and please remember your Paycom and your PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. Uh, you can register for any future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 
7-8. And thank you for joining us.